This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss the Supreme Court, which we've discussed in prior episodes, but today we're going to focus on the confirmation process for justices on the Supreme Court for their lifetime appointments. We're going to talk about how this process is supposed to work, how it has worked in the past, and why the current controversy over the nomination by President Trump of Amy Coney Barrett to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, why that controversy is so serious today and what the stakes are, not just for the future of American politics. Politics, but for the future of the Supreme Court, really. Uh, we have with us uh, one of the foremost scholars of this topic, a good friend who's been with us before, uh, Steve Vladek. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Steve. Uh, thanks for having me back, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Steve Vladek is the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the UT Law School. He is one of the foremost uh, scholars of the Supreme Court. He's actually the CNN analyst for that topic, among many others, and he writes extensively. I know many of you have read his op-eds in the New York Times, Washington Post, and elsewhere. He has a very active Twitter feed. Uh, that I'm I've sorry. I'm, I'm apologizing for my Twitter feed. Are you apologizing for your Twitter feed? <laughs> you shouldn't apologize for that. Yeah. Uh, there's some some Twitter feeds are more valuable than others, right, Steve? <laughs> well said. He's also the co-host uh, with another friend and colleague, uh, Professor uh, Robert Chesney, Bobby Chesney, of uh, the National Security Law Podcast through the Strauss Center here at UT. This is one of the most important podcasts on understanding national security. I know many of our listeners listen to that podcast. He's also part of the Lawfare blog. So we have a lot to talk to Steve about today. But before we get to that, uh, we have, of course, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What is your uh, poem title today, Zachary? By allergy and allegory. Let's hear it. There is a ghost land somewhere near of spirits of the earth and aging oxygenated dirt. And there is hope and there is hate, but no one ever shows up late. They are driven purely by allergy and allegory to lonely far off woods. And they circle round the fire pits with their woulda, coulda, shoulds. I'm allergic to fear and allergic to rage. It makes me cry and it makes me age. For I can feel the poop deck fall right back and the ship open up to the breeze. And what do you do when the ship is sinking and the mice only care about cheese? I can see into the distance where justice can be served, but I have very little hope indeed that I'll ever see this world. What's it like falling backwards, sinking with the ship? What's it like returning to the years of whip and zip? What's it like at your station with your semi-automatic gun, waiting for tax evasion and religiousless salvation? What's it like? Does it feel comforting to be armed while the world ends? Are you safer as the ship goes down because you can carry your gun to town? God created money so some would have to starve, and God created justice for the wealthy ones to carve. And God created people so someone could be killed, and God created forests for the factories to mill. Still, you can grab the pickings as the sinking ships go under, and we will save some hope indeed, for yes, there is light among the thunder. Zachary, I sense Yom Kippur approaching in your, in your poem also, I have to say. Uh, what is the relationship between this really uh, evocative uh, poem and the Supreme Court for you? This poem is really, to me, about uh, what's it like at this moment in our history where everything seems chaotic and in many ways depressing, and to see, to see people uh, trying to hold on to the last bit of power 
today in the Supreme Court, but all the time in different places, not actually trying to serve our ideals, but trying only to grab onto and hold onto the last bits of power. That seems like the perfect spot to turn to uh, Steve Vladek here. Steve, the confirmation process as laid out by the founders was was not supposed to be disorderly, as Zachary describes. It was supposed to be a very orderly process. Is, is that correct? I, mean, I think that's what they wanted. I'm not sure they did a lot to sort of guarantee that would be the case. I mean, the Constitution says nothing at all about the process besides that there, you know, that it exists. The Senate shall provide its advice and consent. It doesn't say what that means. And, you know, so I think, yeah, the founders, I think, envisioned Senate confirmations as, you know, usually fairly rapid affairs, either because it would be clear that the person should be confirmed um, or be clear that they shouldn't be. Um, and, you know, and the history of Supreme Court nominations is actually rife with rejections um, of, of candidates who are either deemed unqualified or too controversial or, you know, otherwise sort of didn't meet the bill. But the notion of the sort of hotly divisive confirmation hearing splayed out over national television, that's definitely more of a, a recent development. Just going back to the founding moment again, what was their sense of what the qualifications would be and what did they mean by advices and consent? You say that they were not clear, but we do have some sense of what they had in mind, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, they wanted obviously folks who were who were qualified in the Senate's view. And I mean, this is what's fascinating, Jeremy, as, as you know, the Constitution creates qualifications for office in the legislative branch. It creates qualifications for office in the executive branch. It creates no qualifications for judicial offices, including the Supreme Court, not because the founders didn't think that these judges should be qualified, but because they thought the Senate would do that work. That, you know, if the president just so happened to nominate a 14-year-old Romanian gymnast to the Supreme Court, um, the Senate would have no trouble rejecting said nominee. So I think the idea was, you know, we wanted folks who were qualified in the sense that they had a career that showed that they were, you know, of the highest caliber in the profession, that they were able to dispense justice impartially and fairly. Um, and, you know, the, again, keep in mind, the founders, you know, didn't necessarily anticipate the rise of the modern party system. And so the notion that, you know, confirmation battles would just devolve into, um, you know, competitions for which side can get over 50 votes you know, how far to the extreme of your party can you go and still get 50 votes? I think that would have been very foreign to the founders. Right, right. And and as you say, they they were not aware or nor did they anticipate the party system as it soon developed. But of course, slavery was was a paramount issue. And is it fair to say, as, as I think uh, our colleague Sandy Levinson has argued, that built into the court system is a kind of innate conservatism, then a presumption that whoever's nominated would have to be acceptable to the most conservative elements in America? in society? I mean, I think I wouldn't say the most conservative elements, Jeremy, but I think, yes, that 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 having the Senate be in charge of the confirmation process, which, of course, was a matter of some debate at the Constitutional Convention, was either deliberately or at least consciously um, a reflection of the notion that, you know, small states, which, you know, including but not limited to slave states, um, would 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 not get run over when it came to the confirmation process that, you know, there really would be geographic division. Um, and 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 geographic representation in the confirmation process, no matter how population patterns emerged. And you know, frankly, I mean, the the first Supreme Court nominee who's rejected um, is actually rejected on policy grounds. It's John Rutledge, 
um, from South Carolina who had been an associate justice on the first Supreme Court. And then he had left to go become the chief justice of South Carolina. He's Washington's first nominee to succeed John Jay as chief justice. And, you know, he makes the um, incredibly dumb move of um, going out and speaking very, very aggressively, I think, against, if memory serves, the Jay Treaty yes. while his nomination was pending. Right. Um, to which the Senate responds by promptly <laughs> rejecting his confirmation as chief justice. So, you know, there, the, the, the notion that political considerations are going to be part of this process dates back at least to the Rutledge confirmation. Um, but, you know, it's still not the same as what we see today, where you have, you know, the parties lining up neatly in the camps, where, I mean, as we've seen with the nomination of, of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, where the Republicans have basically signaled, and, and indeed, did basically signal that they were going to confirm whoever the president nominated yes. before there was even a nominee. That's right. that's new, right? And and so when would you date the beginning of this more partisan process? Uh, wh- when do we see the parties lining up this way, and when do we see it becoming such a national political issue in the way it's it's become recently? Well, I mean, I think the 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 notion the the whole idea of confirmation hearings, I think, is part of this story, and you know that dates back to the early part of the 20th century, um, where you know the there was this moment. I think it was Justice Brandeis where Senate the Senate actually wanted to actually ask some questions and have some process before he was confirmed in 1916. Um, the same thing happens with Justice. Um, Black um, in 1937. And so we see the sort of the gradual rise of the confirmation hearing. But Jeremy, even then, I mean, a majority of the justices, or at least a majority of the nominated justices are confirmed on voice votes all the way into the late 1960s. Um, I mean, Justice Fortas uh, was confirmed in 1965 on a voice vote. Imagine right. that today. Right, right. Um, and, you know, even in the 1970s and 80s, you still see, you know, heavily one-sided votes. I mean, Antonin Scalia was confirmed 98 to nothing. Um, right. Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed 99 to nothing. John Paul Stevens was confirmed 98 to nothing. So I think it's, you know, I, I the, the Robert Bork confirmation hearings and the defeat of Bork as a nominee in 1987, I think were a flashpoint for this. I I don't think it began with Bork, Jeremy, but I do think it accelerated um, and became much more of a sort of consistent theme to confirmation hearings, starting with Bork, um, Clarence Thomas, um, you know, and, and especially in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And and do you think that's because the court has become more important in the political lives of citizens? Um, I think that's part of it. Um, I also think that the court has also become perceived in much more strictly partisan tones. Um, right. I mean, we had a long period of time where the idea where, where the political affiliation of the appointing president was not necessarily predictive of the justices' ideological commitments. I mean, we had, you know, two Republican appointees, John Paul Stevens and David Souter, who formed, you know, a big part of what was called the liberal bloc on the court. Um, you know, John Marshall Harlan, who we today I think would no one would think of as a conservative, right, was, you know, an Eisenhower appointee. So I, I guess, you know, Jeremy, part of it is that um we are viewing the court in more partisan terms. Part of it is I think the court itself is feeding this narrative by handing down so many more decisions that break strictly along these kinds of partisan lines. And frankly, I think part of it is just you know a symptom of the broader polarization of all of our politics, where it was just you know inevitable that the Supreme Court would be part of that story. 
Is it also that, and and this is an argument I've heard many make, um, is it that uh, the justices are now so uh, vetted in such detail by presidents and their administrations that they're actually choosing people who are less likely to change their positions over time? I mean, you do do point to David Souter as as one who did this, but it's hard to see much movement in in Clarence Thomas, for example, during his time on the court. Yeah, I mean, mean, another way of putting that same thing, Jeremy, which I agree with is, is, you know, we're not appointing moderates anymore. And, you know, this is where I think one of the many casualties of the Merrick Garland affair was that, you know, whatever Mitch McConnell wants to say to the contrary, I mean, Garland's a moderate. Um, and, you know, that was, I think, a naive but olive branch um, by President Obama um, that, you know, for Scalia's seat, you know, he's not going to try to ram through a, a, a liberal, right? He actually wants someone who is moderate. And of course, the Senate said, no, thank you. Um, you know, I, I think it is it is increasingly not in the president's interest to appoint anyone other than the most you know, radical member of their party that they can get through the Senate. And that is as much about the Senate, I think, as it is about the president. I mean, if the reality were, you know, if Trump knew that he could not get 50 votes for a, you know, radical conservative, if he knew he had to appoint someone much more moderate, then it's very possible that, you know, we hear a very different name coming out of his mouth um, last Saturday afternoon. But, you know, he knows that the one thing he can absolutely count on in the Republican Senate majority at the moment is, you know, support for whoever he nominates. And so as opposed to, say, Harriet Myers, um, who President George Bush, you know, nominated only to have killed by his own party in 2005, you know, it, we, we knew going in that this was going to be someone pretty far to the right. Indeed, it's why a lot of people were able to predict that it would be Amy Coney Barrett. Hmm. Yeah, it, we've heard a lot lately about this idea of textualism or originalism. When did this idea sort of become like a, a calling card for conservative justices? And 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 could you maybe give a brief summary of what textualism or originalism is? Yeah, I mean, so you know, what the court, as Jeremy said, I think earlier, Zachary, right? The the court has always been with maybe a very small exception in the 1960s and and late 50s, a small C conservative institution in the sense that it moves slowly, it tends not to be at the forefront of social change, you know, tends to be responsive to broader shifts in public opinion and not ahead of them. Um, The rise of what we might think of as the modern conservative legal movement, I think really does begin as a sort of backlash against the perceived excesses of the Warren court. And so there's a whole generation of lawyers you know, who go to law school in the, the 60s and 70s, um, who go to work in the Nixon and Ford administrations, and maybe even the Reagan administration, um, for whom you know, the court had become way too powerful a cha- you know, in sort of expanding individual rights and expanding the role of the courts in limiting um, what states could do in um, allowing Congress to do things Congress never been allowed to do before. Um, and so this is, you know, this is the generation that produces Antonin Scalia. This is the generation that produces, you know, Clarence Thomas and, you know, Samuel Alito and sort of right behind them, John Roberts. And I think it's very much a, you know, it, it is it is not about conservatism in the sense that the court should stay out of these affairs. It's conservatism in the sense that the court's um, aggressiveness should be directed in other ways, that that the court should actually be constraining the federal government when it comes to ordinary economic regulation and leaving more room for the states, that the court should be, you know, doing more to recognize religious liberty as opposed to unenumerated rights. Um, and, and I think that's, 
you know, textualism and originalism are parts of that movement, but they don't describe the whole movement that, you know, um, originalism is one of the methodological approaches that we tend to associate with conservatives, but it's not the only one. Um, originalism actually doesn't describe or explain the entire conservative understanding of the Constitution, not even most of it. Ditto textualism, but they're all sort of swimming in the same direction, which is, you know, at least superficially constraining the role of judges in many, but not all cases. So, so this brings Steve to us to the question that that I think, as a historian, always animates our analysis of these issues. To what extent uh, are these arguments uh, about originalism or activism and restraint? To what extent are they real arguments motivating what people do, or to what extent are they post hoc rationalizations for power moves? It seems very difficult to to consistently find evidence that uh, the confirmation process and then the jurisprudence of the judges follows some philosophy. It seems more obvious that it follows the desire for p- political power for particular groups. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is, I think this is the great debate. And one of the, one of the things that is maddening to me about the confirmation process is that the, to whatever, to, to what little extent we actually end up having a public debate about these theories, there, you know, the debates occur at such a superficial level as to be almost meaningless. Um, so, you know, the originalism debate is pitched in terms of, that no one could disagree with, right? That, you know, of course, what the founders actually wrote and what those words were understood to mean is at least somehow relevant in how we understand the Constitution. No one disagrees with that, right? The question is, when should it be dispositive? Um, and, you know, Jeremy, I think there really is a lot of evidence for the notion that at least plenty, not all, but plenty of these folks, you know, use these methodologies the way that a drunk uses a lamppost, right? For yes. support rather than illumination. Yes, yes. Um, the problem is that, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's hard. First of all, it's hard to prove that. Um, and second, you know, to actually get into the weeds, to to really explain the pitfalls with original public meaning as a, as a you know, touchstone of constitutional interpretation requires degrees of nuance that, you know, obviously we aspire to in our law school classes, um, but that are just impossible for the public sphere. And so, you know, just, I mean, the example I always love to use um is the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment. So, you know, most folks know the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. Right. It also prohibits excessive fines. Um, and, you know, that begs the question, of course, well, what makes a fine excessive? <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, if, if we are engaging in a purely static form of originalism, um, then just about every fine levied by government today is excessive simply because of inflation. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me, to which, of course, everyone asks, well, no, excessive obviously has to be understood by at least some reference to, you know, present-day conditions. And once you concede that, you are giving up the ghost on most originals because you're saying at least some constitutional provisions are dynamic um, and have to be understood by reference to evolving understandings. And then it's just a fight over which provisions, you know, fall into that category. Right. And it also seems to me as a historian, and I, and I think this is something Akhil Reed Amar and other, other legal scholars have argued as well, that the history that is often used to justify an originalist position is actually not very good history. That, <laughs> so it's well, not clear I, they're actually getting at the originalism. 
I, I mean, it's not very good history, Jeremy. At the very least, it is often um, debatable history, right? right? And so it's, I mean, I think the, the term that the law professors have for it is law office history. Yes. Um, which is not, uh, it's not a compliment to call someone a law office historian. Um, and, and I think, I mean, you know, the uh, another really good example of this is the nerdy but important topic of state sovereign immunity. That is to say, when can a non-consenting state be sued? Mm. Um, you know, without, without, uh, uh, just, you know, if they've done something wrong and there was this huge Renaissance and revolution in the Supreme court's jurisprudence on this exact topic in the 1990s spurred on by the conservatives and spurred on by at least, you know, um, putative invocations of originalism, but the historical materials are actually incredibly ambivalent on this. And, you know, and so we have this problem where, you know, the, the sort of folks who say, I, you know, originalism is the only right way to interpret the constitution, just don't, you know, don't fully, I don't know, account for how much of the constitution can't be satisfactorily, um, uh, their word is liquidated, but I would say Mm -hmm. fleshed out, um, right. Solely based on even good history, of the founding, right? Because you know, because the the reality is, the founders didn't think about everything. Uh, they couldn't. There's no right. way they could. There's That's no right. way they. Uh, so, so coming back to the confirmation process, if we don't have a clear standard of what you know, what justices should be thinking. I mean, ostensibly, we have a standard of what are the skills and behavior patterns we want when we're appointing someone to be a tax collector or to play some (laughs) other role like that, even to be a professor, right? The tenure process involves peer review. Do we do certain kinds of research? Have we met certain standards? If we don't have that for the appointment of judges, or if it's much murkier, uh, how do we avoid... Falling into the trap, it seems we've fallen into where this is purely about power, where the Senate, the, the Republicans in control of the Senate under a Democratic president say, we're not going to let you uh, replace Antonin Scalia. In fact, Amy Coney Barrett herself said that four years ago. And now when the same Republicans are in control of the Senate and you have a Republican president, they say, oh, well, now we're happy to go forward in an election year. Uh, how do we avoid being stuck in a place where it's purely about power? Or are we OK with that? Um. Uh- that, that I mean, that's of course the really hard question. I I'm not okay with it being purely about power, if only because it means you polarize the court, right? That that insofar as our demographics are going to you know lead to cyclical shifts in who's in power in Washington, you know that's going to create a superficially balanced court, Jeremy, but a court with no middle. Um, and you know, and I wrote a piece last year. The when, you know one of the things that that I admired about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Was that she really was a centrist um, in ways that Anthony Kennedy wasn't? Like we we tend to think of Kennedy as being the swing vote and the median vote from you know for the most of the last twelve years of his career, but he was the median vote, Jeremy, only in the sense that if you averaged out his votes, he was in the middle, <laughs> right? He he bounced wildly from one side to the other, and O'Connor was the opposite. O'Connor was always in the middle, um, and you know Evan Thomas has a wonderful book about O'Connor called First. Um, which I think you know spends a lot of time unpacking how w- the influence she had, not just in what the court would hold in these cases, but in how, in which cases they would take, in how they would even think about the issues, just by the fact that she took a more pragmatic, centrist approach to these cases, and what it means to a court that no longer has anyone like that. Um, and, and I think it's wh- whatever your politics. I think a court with no middle 
suffers from many of the same problems as a Congress with no middle, um, which is that there's no effort to, to build consensus. There's no reason to compromise. There's every reason to double down on tribalism. And I think the only way you can, well, there, there are two ways to fix that. I mean, one way is a president um, who is willing to unilaterally disarm um, which you know, I think it's 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 easy to understand why there's no incentive right now for that to happen. Um, the other way is to actually you know not take it out of the president's hands, but at least put some kind of bipartisan commission into the mix, the way that a number of states do. So a number of states actually have judicial nominated commissions that are designed to actually you know identify really who are the creme de la creme, um, who are going to be the best judges on merit. And then, you know, the, the relevant official, the governor, whoever, you know, could pick one of the people who's sort of elevated by the nominated commission. I, you know, that's a model we might want to think about. I mean, it, it, it has the slight small problem of being unconstitutional. Right. Um, but, you know, maybe a president could at least soft commit to following recommendations of such a commission as opposed to being bound by them. Is there um, is there yeah. a curious way, Steve, in which the filibuster sort of did that before it was eliminated for judicial appointments? Well, yes and no. I mean, the problem with the filibuster is that it's not symmetrical, right? That that the filibuster allow you know the the filibuster in requiring a supermajority required even more from Democrats than it required from Republicans um, because of the way you know because of the way population patterns are and the way representation works out in the Senate. Um, right. And so I don't, you know, I, I think the problem is that yes, it required that more than today, but still in ways that are asymmetrical and not necessarily consistent. Um, I, I, you know, I think the the better approach, right, would be to think carefully about, you know, sort of some kind of mutual deal where the median senators, right, like this, this was the idea behind the so-called Gang of Fourteen proposal back in the two thousands, where seven senators from the left and you know, seven Democrats, seven Republicans got together and said, the fourteen of us can control the flow of judicial appointments because both sides need us. And we're going to agree on some basic principles, right, to guide those appointments. That's what has disappeared. That's what's missing from today is anyone who's going to exert um, anything other than partisan, you know, justifications and commitments and qualifications on the confirmation process. And, and I think that's unfortunate. Like I think I think that really is a shame. So uh, just mo moving it to where we are right today, uh, if if Amy Coney Barrett gets confirmed, which it looks like she will. I was going to say when. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, either right before the election or right after the election. What should, if there is a President Biden who follows this, what should he do? Um, you know, I, I'm probably the, 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 the worst person to ask that question of because um, I am – how do I put this gently? I, I am a I am a weird progressive in that I am a judicial supremacist progressive. Um, my sort of gut reaction is Biden should do very little. That you know I think there's a conversation to be had about court reforms in general, about ways of you know sort of making the federal courts fairer and more egalitarian in what they do. Um, I think there are personnel reforms with regard to sexual harassment in the judiciary that, of course, should be pursued. Um, I think access to the courts would be a really powerful measure for the Democrats where, you know, it's so hard today to actually sue the government when they break the law, making it easier, wholly apart from who the judges are, I think would be a positive step. I, I am not a fan, Jeremy, of the notion of, you know, 
whether you want to call it court packing or court unpacking or whatever, you know, whatever. Expanding the court, expanding the court. However you want to call it. I, I think it's, I think it's very, very short sighted because, you know, to whatever extent Democrats are rightly just, are rightly um, um, angry about the hypocrisy of Republicans vis-a-vis what they said in 2016 versus today, about how everything went down with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, you know, there's no denying the anger and the frustration. The problem is, is that if Democrats in 2021 add two seats to the Supreme Court, which Congress has the power to do, then the next time the Republicans are in power, they'll add four. And the next time the Democrats are in power, they'll add six. And in 15 or 20 years, we'll have a Supreme Court with 37 justices and no legitimacy. And so, you know, I, I, I know there are folks who will see that as a feature and not a bug, but I guess I'm not one of them. Um, and to me, the, you know, the way to sort of um, push back at the, all of this is to make it clear to everyone why we need the courts, what we expect the courts to do. If you want to add judges, great, add judges to the lower courts. I mean, that's not nearly the same kind of, you know, norm, uh, um, norm, norm intruding behavior. Um, but you know, messing with the Supreme Court because for what will clearly be perceived as partisan reasons, I think is a very dangerous you know road to go down. So, two other quick questions: uh, What do you think about putting an eighteen-year term limit on uh, justices on the court? So, I, I, I like the idea in the abstract. I, I actually do think there are ways to do it that would not be unconstitutional. Um, that's the, you know, usually the first objection you hear is that they get life tenure. Um, there are ways to read Article 3 where as long as you keep paying the judges and as long as they have something to do after 18 years, it's not violating Article 3. I, I'm not worried about the constitutional objections. I'm not sure that that would actually, you know, solve this problem. Like, you know, so, so a, a confirmation every two years adds a degree of predictability in the process, right? It reduces the odds that we're going to have the sort of unpredicted, you know, Scalia death, unpredicted Ginsburg death coming when they did. Um, but I don't know why the appointments wouldn't be just as um, political in, you know, even if they were predictable. Um, I don't know why presidents would be inclined to sort of moderate themselves at all in that context versus actually having a license to be even more aggressive and perhaps even more extreme. Um, and, you know, I also, I don't, I don't love the idea of justices who might be looking for jobs um, after, I mean, right, Amy, if, if Amy Coney Barrett served an 18 year term, she'd be 65 when she right. left the court. Right. Um, you know, that creates pressures that I'm not wild about. There, there's a whole history of why Congress finally broke down and gave the justices good pensions. Um, right, because of all the awkward incentives that the sure. lack of a good pension was creating. Sure, sure. So, sure. so I, I don't, I don't, I don't mind the 18-year proposal. I just think that there are other ways that we ought to be thinking about, you know, the role of the courts in our system. Um, you know, if we think the court is hearing too many of these high-profile, politically divisive cases, you know, Congress has a lot to say about the court's docket, um, right? I mean, in 19, you know, Congress over to, over much of the 20th century gave the Supreme Court a lot more control over its docket, culminating in 1988. Where you know, since '88, almost every single case, the Supreme Court gets to choose whether to hear or not. Why not go back on that? Why not right. you know actually start picking again more aggressively which cases the court has to hear, 
and maybe even finding some cases we think the court shouldn't hear. I mean, I think, you know, those are the kinds of conversations I think we ought to be having about court reform, as opposed to just, you know, thinking that we can somehow take the politics out of the confirmation process, either by adding seats or by imposing term limits. This is really helpful and, and very thoughtful. So so the, the final question I wanted to ask you then uh, is about the, the current predicament. Uh, there's no doubt uh, that what we're going through right now does to some extent delegitimize the court, right? If the perception is supposed to be that you're getting impartial justice and the process of getting on the court, uh, no matter whose fault it is, is so highly politicized that certainly takes away the veneer of impartiality. It can be recovered, but it does take away the veneer of that to some extent. What happens if, uh, God forbid, the election does somehow go to the Supreme Court, which it won't necessarily and probably shouldn't? Uh, how do you think the confirmation process affects that? And how do you think the nominee affects the role of the court? You mentioned Sandra Day O'Connor before. Uh, she will always be remembered. And I think she regrets right her role yep. in um, Bush v. Gore, the 2000 decision that actually gave the election to uh, George W. Bush. So, so how do we think about that moment? And how do we think about this moment today with this confirmation and, the, and this bitterly fought election coming up in 30 some odd days? So I mean, I, I think there's no question that the Supreme Court is in a much more fragile position today than it was in you know at the same moment in 2000 um and that you know i so 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 just off the top i actually think it's going to be very hard to see a repeat of bush versus gore because this is a very different court today um yes it's more conservative but it's also a court that i think is well aware of just how fragile things are at the moment i mean this is a court that i think is you know two or three steps away from you know, really, really provoking legitimacy concerns among a majority of the population. I mean, there's already a good chunk of the population thinks it's illegitimate. But um, so, so I actually, you know, I, I have, I actually think if we do see an election-related dispute that gets to the court, um, I expect them to actually be m- very wary of leaning in heavily in favor of the president. Um, and indeed, I actually think if if it, if it gets down to a Bush versus Gore-like scenario specifically, it wouldn't surprise me at all. If you know a confirmed Justice Amy Coney Barrett recused herself, um, for two reasons, right, Jeremy? I mean, the first is you know the the first is sort of practical and and a bit cynical, which is if the long term conservative project is judicial hegemony, um, a court with no legitimacy is antithetical to that project, and you know, sort of taking steps that are going to really really undermine the public perception of the court. Um, in, in an electoral context, I think could actually be far more dangerous today than it was in 2000. You know, keep in mind, Jeremy, in 2000, it wasn't an incumbent who had appointed three of the justices, right? right who for for whom the court swung the election. Um, the longer term piece of this is, I also think that you know, if you are John Roberts and and you know who's who's one of the smartest guys around and who really does have a, a you know really does take the long view. I mean, one of my one of my favorite John Roberts stories um, is when he called Elena Kagan right after Kagan was confirmed by the Senate and said, "Congratulations, I'm really looking forward to to working with you for the next 25 years." And <laughs> and Kagan snaps back, you know, only 25. Right. <laughs> um, so you know, if, if you're John Roberts, you know, one of the best things you could do. Um, is rule against Trump in an election-related dispute um, because that's going to do so much to sort of quiet 
you know, at least some of the legitimacy objections and at least some of the hostility. Um, and it's going to create so much room for Roberts to actually do all kinds of bad stuff on the merits mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in the future. So I, I actually, I mean, maybe this is naive, but I actually think, you know, the specter of the new conservative majority, you know, icing the skids for Trump in the election is is really, really, really unlikely if for no other reason than because it is in so many ways going to be against the court's interest to do that. That's very reassuring to hear. And and it, it makes sense. And I, I believe that myself. I On the other hand, I just can't imagine this did not come up in President Trump's discussions with Amy Coney Barrett. I, you know, I think that's right. But I, I, I don't, I mean, one of the questions I really hope she's asked at the very brief confirmation hearings to which she's going to be subjected um, is whether there were any discussions about election related cases and whether, you know, she was asked about whether she would recuse in any of these cases. I, I would like that to be on the record. But, you know, I, I think it's worth stressing, though. I mean, the. It, it takes, you know, it's not just about Amy Coney Barrett at this point. Like, you know, you need five votes to win one of these cases. And, you know, with the chief justice and, you know, this may sound surprising, but I think to some degree, you know, someone like a Justice Kavanaugh, um, I I really think that they're going to be more interested in protecting the court's power in the long term, especially now that they have such a solid majority to, you know, expand the Second Amendment, to reinvigorate religious liberty, to push back against Roe, to do all kinds of really, really, to me, problematic things. I think the last thing they'd want to do is spend all of their power, um, you know, in an election dispute that's going to, you know, potentially lead to the re-election of Trump and to the demise of the Supreme Court as a, you know, as a well-regarded institution. Interesting. So there's a distinction you're drawing, which I think is very persuasive between short-term partisanship and long-term partisanship. I think that's right. And, you know, and, and I mean, one of, for better or for worse, when you have a Supreme Court with what are at least for the moment effectively lifetime appointments, um, we should expect the justices to be much more focused on the long-term politics and playing the long game. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing in the abstract or a bad thing. I think in this moment in time, you know, it's probably a good thing, at least as we look, to, look ahead to the next six weeks. That that's that's very helpful, Zachary. Uh, when when I was your age, and I think Steve's about the same age as I am. So when when Steve and I were your age, uh, we we were taught. I'm sure Steve was taught this as well in high school that the Supreme Court was the place that solved problems, that that issues that couldn't be solved uh, in the legislative process often went to the court and the great Earl Warren Court and other courts uh, under Warren Burger as well was a place where these things were finally settled by wise wise men um, who deliberated over these issues. Obviously. It's a very different world today, as your poem pointed out. H- how do you and your generation, when you think about these issues, I know you're thinking about them a lot right now, how do you view the court and what do you see as the future of the Supreme Court within our democracy? I, I'm not overly cynical about the future of the court, but I do think that my generation as a whole is very cynical about American politics in general, but in particular the Supreme Court. I think uh, the Supreme Court is seen in many ways as an extension of politics. And I'm very interested to see in the next few years and even the next few decades if the Supreme Court will be able to gain back some of that legitimacy. And maybe because of that perception, they will be forced to make uh, make decisions that are more in line with the views of young people, but I'm I'm very wary of of anyone who would claim that the Supreme Court has has supreme legitimacy across the board among the American population because I think young people are really doubtful of its uh, nonpartisanship. 
I think that's very insightful, Zachary. Steve, uh, thank you for your insights today. I think you've given us a really good sense of, of how the legitimacy of the court evolves and what the real crisis of legitimacy is today and how the confirmation process is part of that and how we could see ourselves maybe moving out of it uh, in, in, in the future. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Of course. Thanks for having me. And Zachary, thank you for your poem and your your insights. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. Please remember to vote. And if you live in Texas, please remember that you must register to vote within the next week. You must be registered one month before Election Day. And if you live in other states, please make sure you check on your registration requirements and whatever voting by mail requirements you have as well. We look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you again on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.